Uh, we are in the second week of a, a, a series called Ecclesia. Um, what is it? Uh, it's a Greek word, and, and it's derived from a, a passage we looked at last week. And by the way, I'm just going to do a very, very short little introductory here. Um, you're going to think, wow, he's launching into the full sermon. My wife reminds me of that every time I sit down. It's like, wow, was that your whole sermon? No, it was just an introduction, honey. So, we get this passage, this word, ecclesia, from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church, my called-out gathering of my people. And again, likely Jesus' translator, or excuse me, the word that Jesus probably used was kahal, which was the uh, Hebrew word for the gathering of the Israelite people, the people um, of God. And, and, and from the very get-go, this passage, you know, the Catholic Church kind of landed on their interpretation, but there have been a lot of different interpretations. They decided that, you know, the church would be built on Peter as the first bishop of the Church of Rome, and, and therefore that church in Rome would take on a little bit more equality than the rest of the equal among equals. Um, they would become kind of the top dog there. Um, but, but again, from the very beginning, there were different ideas of what this passage, what, what, what was Jesus, Jesus driving at? Um, one idea is he was, he was talking about himself, the person, his personhood. Um, another idea is he, he was talking about the fact, the objective fact that he was, in fact, the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one that the people of Israel had been waiting for all these years. Um, and then a, a third one, um, this is people landing on that, Peter's faith, not necessarily on Peter himself, but on his faith that he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And we looked at a fourth option. And again, this fourth option, there's not necessarily right or wrong in any of these. Um, they have aspects of truth about them. They have um, different viewpoints, but they're all, I think, essentially true. But a fourth way to look at this um, is a kind of a combination. We looked at this last week. Peter, uh, think of him as the cornerstone, right? The, the first to believe. It's like Jesus said, Peter, you're the first man to grasp who I am. You're therefore the first stone, the foundation stone, the very beginning of the church that I'm founding, right? Because Peter's not the rock. We know in Scripture, we, we talked about this last week, God's, God's the rock. I mean, that just goes on. And, and, and if I was Peter and he said, like, you're a rock, I'd feel really good because God's the rock. And he's like, a little bit of comparison there. So Peter's, you know, his head's getting big at this point. And if you read in Matthew, like, the very next thing that Matthew or Peter does, like, he's like... His head got really big, and then Jesus is talking about getting crucified, and Peter like, oh, no, I'll kill anybody that comes near you. It's like, calm down, Peter. <laughs> calm down, Peter. Um, so Peter, the first guy on earth to make the leap of faith and see that Jesus is the son of the living God, right? So we, we kind of look at him maybe as the first member of the church, right? We, we, we can go that. We can go that. Um, so last week, we moved from a, an incredibly wide array of uh, New Testament metaphors and word pictures. And I, and I get the distinct impression that the, the gospel writers, especially Paul, if you look at his letters, um, we look at our churches today and we think, wow, we've fallen, right? The early church was so beautiful and so perfect. No, read the letters. <laughs> read the letters. Those first churches were a mess. They're, 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 just, they're, they're filled with broken human beings trying to figure out this Jesus thing. Right? So I, I, in my mind, I envision Paul going, okay, let's come up with another metaphor because that one didn't work. Let's, okay, the bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ or the, an olive field or, you know, and he's just like, come on, people, you got to get it. You got to understand this is different than anything that we've ever done before. And so he's got all these metaphors, right? And then we, we, we're also different. We, we have different spiritual temperaments. You know, I, I recognize I'm, I kind of dig into the, the, the study thing, but I'm also, I was talking to my wife, also nature, right? I'm kind of that combination. I, I look at nature, and I, I promise you on a sunny day, I'm this close to believing that it's sin to be inside. 
on a I just I do. I can't hardly study because like God's like, get outside and enjoy this beautiful day I've made for you, you fool. What are you doing inside? It's like, okay, okay, okay. And then, anyway, anyway, I digress. So we move to three absolutely essential characteristics. Out of all these word pictures in the Bible and all these um, spiritual temperaments, the church of the Nazarene kind of boiled down to three um, that we believe a church should be about. Um, we're a Christian people, we're a holiness people, and we're a missional people. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this word missional. What does it mean to be a missional people? And in fact, I'm going to take a close look, not so much at the other two, we're Christian people and holiness people, but the way that all three of these are phrased. I want you to notice something. They're all a singular. There's no plural involved. We are a people. And that's crucial, just incredibly important where I want to go this morning. We are, we are, we are singular. We're not primarily, now, I use that word, we're not primarily, which means we are to a certain extent, but not at the highest level, right? So primarily, we're not an association or a collective or a group of individuals who happen to be uh, mission-minded, holiness-oriented, and Trinitarian Christian. That, that's, we do gather for those reasons, but that's not why we gather primarily. We're going to be looking at that um, today. And from these Nazarene core values, last week we introduced a, a, a newly board-adopted mission statement. Hit that next slide there. I'm very happy about this. The mission of the Richland Church of Nazarene is to make Christ-like disciples. That Christ-like, again, we talked about that. That's our holiness stamp, right? Christ-like disciples in the Tri-Cities. Now, we're going to be talking about mission today, missional. Um, as you look at this, the fact that we have a mission statement doesn't make us missional. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Those words are spelled very, very similarly, but, but they don't mean the same thing, right? The mission statement simply means that we have a task before us. We have a responsibility. We're not just here gathering and spinning our wheels until we die, right? We, he gave us a task, some marching, some marching orders. So we have a mission, right? Um, the fact that I put that, that, that it wasn't me, it was um, our, our church, um, in the Tri-Cities, that, that makes us missional. We're going to talk about that idea today. What does it mean to be in the Tri-Cities, a church in the world? What does it mean to be a church in the world? Uh, so we're going to be talking about mission and mission statements and church mission projects and missionaries. And, and what does it mean to be a missional, missional church this morning? So very, very, very short little history lesson, about three, four minutes. Hang in there. This is the introduction still, I know. For the past two or three hundred years, when you think about mission, you think of two, three, two things generally. And more recently, and I think this is worldwide, it might, it might just be in America, but we, we, we have a third image in our head. Like, I'm from California, right? So the first idea that I had of missions, and this was all the kids on my block, didn't matter if they were Baptists or atheists or Satan worshipers, right? We all knew about the California missions, right? You say the word mission, and you're from California, 21 missions, right? And you know in fourth grade that you built a sugar cube model. Any of you from California, any of you have to do this? It's good stuff, good stuff. Oh, what a nightmare, what a nightmare. Um, so we think about that, but, but then if you went to church, you think about that picture in the upper right-hand corner, right? We, we, we go to different continents, Africa, Asia, more recently South America, and we, we bring our flag and our culture, and sometimes it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing, and sometimes it's not so much, not so beautiful, it's kind of cultural level leveling, but, but anyway, you know, that, that's kind of these two word pictures, and the more recently, I think in America, you, you, you say a missionary, I think more often than not, people are going to think about that upper left-hand picture, missionaries from the Latter-day Saint church, right? That, that, that's probably the most visible missionary that we have in our culture here in America, Right, so if you were somewhere else, you might have a different, different picture. 
But for the past half century, the word missions has taken on a whole new meaning, right? Because businesses and organizations kind of got this idea that we we're going to make a, like, a, like a mission statement, right? We, we got to keep our people focused on, on what we're to be about. Otherwise, we start doing a whole bunch of different things and our, our, our bottom dollar sinks, right? Our, our profits. So, so what are we really good at? What, what are we focused on? And so the church kind of followed suit, right? And, and there's some downsides and some, some good sides on, on this. Um, it was important because businesses recognize something that pastors recognize too. If we don't constantly talk about what we're to be about, people forget, right? That's the book of Deuteronomy, right? Moses, the whole way through, he's like, listen, people, don't forget. Write it on your forehead. Write it on, you know, door. Don't forget. And, and, and the business world, I don't think they got it from Jesus. I don't know where they got it, but we definitely kind of drew a conclusion and said, yeah, yeah, right? We tend to drift on what we're to be about. People begin to be more concerned about their own personal interests and the interests of the people we're supposed to be reaching. And, and that just happens because we're human. So with these mission statements, we, business world and the church, I think we're just trying to, okay, everybody, come on, stay focused, stay, stay, stay on task, on, on point, right? All, all organizations run the risk of, of losing sight of why they exist. And the worst thing that can happen, there's two things that can happen. Not the worst thing, but the second to the worst thing is we default to easy, Right? We, we just do. Unless somebody is, I don't want to say cracking the whip, but reminding us what we're to be about, we default to easy. Well, what's easiest for us? Or, or we just atrophy, right? Our, our muscles get flabby and, and, and we eventually die as an organization, as an organism. So again, I'm not talking about today any of the other missionaries per se or mission statements or I'm going to come back and touch on one of the, a couple of those things but really what I want to talk about is w the most recent idea of missions um, at least in church circles and, and church discussions and it always revolves around these sets of ideas right here um, the missional church, the missio Dei, and the incarnational church. Maybe you've heard a few of these phrases. The missional church, writing on what it means to be a missional church. Um, I'm going to throw out a couple of phrases here. A, a famous missiologist, I don't know if you guys knew that that was a job title. You can be a missiologist. Uh, you study missiology. <laughs> this is all kind of new stuff, fascinating. So a very famous, well-known missiologist who studies missiology, Daryl Gruder writes this about what it means to be a missional church. It's taken us decades to realize that mission is not just a program of the church. It defines the church as God's sent people, right? For the longest time, we did the once a month thing on Sunday night, missions night, you know, something like that. But, but more and more folks are saying, no, 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 it can't be a little part of your church, right? Either we are defined by mission or we reduce the scope of the gospel and the mandate of the church to just us. Then he finishes. Thus, our challenge today is to move from a church with mission to a missional church. In other words, missions is and should be the tail that wags a dog. You ever seen a big dog with a big tail, man? Wherever that tail goes, the rest of the dog goes, right? The tail makes a decision. And big dogs, man, those tails and those bodies will break your leg. I got a, I got a nephew that got a big old dog, and that tail goes going in the, oh, my goodness, just get out of the way. Things get broken. Um, being a missional church isn't something that was pulled out of thin air. 
So like, hey, that sounds new and exciting. Let's try that. And there's actually part of these next two phrases, the Missio Dei and the Incarnational Church. Missio Dei, the mission of God, right? So God the Father sends God the Son into the world. Incarnational, God with us. And then God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit incarnationally into the world. And then God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit sends the church into the world. It's simply an extension of the mission of God. That's what makes a missional church. We are on mission for God. We're, we're on his mission. <clears throat> and then the incarnational church, again, it, you know, God with us. And as, as that extends out, um, God with our neighbors too. One last missiologist statement that I'm going to step down and we're going to sing some more and listen to Douglas and get some more stuff here. Missionary activity is not so much the work of the church as simply the church at work. So what I want to do this morning is I just kind of want to change the way we think about ourselves, right? Missionaries are no longer my sister who happens to be in Mozambique, right? We got to start thinking about ourselves. Every single one of people, in my view, you're, you're a missionary. You are a missionary. In fact, the United States of America, you all know this, it's the biggest mission field in the world now. People from other nations who find Christ look at America and go, wow, what a mess. We need to send our people to America because they're lost, right? We're the biggest mission field in the world. That, that says something. Um, so mission still means sending, but now it's seen and understood to mean all of us. So what will that look like for us, the Church of the Nazarene here in Richland? Very interesting. I'm very, very excited about this. Um, um, archaeologists, philosophers, anthropologists, historians, people who study people and humanity and the human race, um, they've all known for a long time that we are incredibly social creatures, Right? This isn't new. You all knew this. Um, if you married a woman, you, you know this. We are incredibly social creatures. Um, and they understand that what holds most of these groups together. I mean, it differs a little bit depending on the group. But there's some real common denominators of what holds groups of human beings um, together. Um, what makes the church, though, one. Are the things that hold all the other groupings in the world, businesses, sports, clubs, all that kind of stuff, is, is, it, is the church similar or are we categorically different? I mean, com a completely different animal altogether. Um, so what holds, we'll kind of back up a step here um, and then move to the church. What holds human beings, human groups together? A again, in any kind of gathering that you can um, think of. Thomas Hobbes is a political philosopher from the 1700s during the Enlightenment. Thomas Paine was a contemporary of his. And they both kind of talked along the same ideas um, that people um, in the natural state of the world um, living by yourself is dangerous and not very productive, right? You got to fight the wild all by yourself. And, and, and it's a lot easier if you gather some people around you, right? You get a little bit more security. You can gather a little bit more resources, get a little bit more food, and you can rest easy at night knowing that all your junk's not going to get stolen, right? Because you're in a group of people and you're kind of protecting one another. So Thomas Hobbes said this, this is kind of the way humanity naturally works, right? Groups form partnerships and institutions that protect and promote whatever the group wants to promote and protect, right? Without community, we, 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 life is just difficult. Right? We know these things, and we also know what follows from this, that in order to be part of a group, you, you give up some things. 
right? You give up some of your rights, some of your privileges, but what you get back in return hopefully is more than what you gave up. And that's why you're a part of the group. That makes sense, right? You give up a little bit, but you gain more, right? Second thing, if you violate these partnerships, institutions, right, you're going to get punished, right? You, or you're going to get banished, um, and then finally, the social good of the majority becomes the basis for all decisions. Let's, let's draw that out one step further. Whatever the group decides is best for them becomes the basis for what's ethical and unethical. Let's draw that out a little further. Whatever the group decides is good for us becomes the basis for morality. That's scary, right? When the group of people get together and decide this is good and that's evil, Man, I don't know if I trust other people's opinion. I'd kind of like to have a higher authority than, like, I know what my neighbor's like. I hope my neighbor's not listening. Um, uh, so for a couple reasons, like the reasons above, right? It's difficult to be alone, and we, we do better in groups. Um, we, we form alliances, just like on the television show, you know, Survival, Survivor and all those. We, we form alliances, and they're strategic alliances. They're not just willy-nilly Alliances, right? They're alliances that help us in our work or in our play, in, in whatever aspect of our life. These alliances, they help us, right? And we sustain these partnerships and institutions as long as they're profitable or beneficial. And as soon as they become less than what you're giving, I'm out of here. I don't want to be a part of y'all anymore. I'm going to go join, right? The charter stinks, so maybe I'll become a Seahawks fan. I don't know, right? You, <laughs> it's not profitable to be a Charger fan. I'll tell you what, it's just, it's just not, right? So, but here's the problem. As you go find a better majority of folks that, are, that will agree with you, you find out that they're wrong too. <laughs> they're wrong too. And, and, and you, you move from group to group to group, finding some, trying to find somebody that would agree with you. Here's what Hobbes got right, right? I don't know if he was right on everything if life was that horrible. Um, but he, does, he, he is right on this. Human communities tend to form as a function of the self-interest of the individuals. So our question this morning, is the International Church of the Nazarene, and by extension, Richland, Washington, <laughs> I caught that. <laughs> My wife caught it. I didn't. I didn't have a clue. Um, is the Richland Church of the Nazarene, are we simply in an alliance? Are we simply a partnership or an association or a collective or a group of individuals who happen to be mission-minded, holiness-oriented, and Trinitarian Christians? Is that really all we are? Because if that's all we are, as soon as somebody doesn't like something, they're gone. We don't have unity anymore. We have division. We, we're always on the very edge of division. Why? Because we're trying to keep everybody happy. Because if everybody, if somebody decides, well, this doesn't benefit me anymore, I'm no longer happy, and if that's the basis for us gathering together, does this place make me happy or does this place make me sad? Do they make me work or can I sit back and do nothing? I mean, you know, all that plays into, do I want to be a part of this group? If I'm not getting any benefit, then I don't want to be a part of this group. That, that's an ugly picture. I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that's not a biblical picture of what ecclesia means. Kahal, the, the people of God. Now, it's not a bad thing necessarily to have partnerships, to win awards, to have organization, all, all that kind of stuff, but it does lead to a subtle shift, right, in the way the church focuses on the needs of the mission of God or the mission our mission, our own mission. We lose sight of the divine nature of the church if we start thinking about we're, we're simply a collection of individuals 
We're not simply a collection. This is, this is something divine that's going on in this building right here. And the fact of the matter is, this doesn't belong to us. Neither do we. Both us and this church belongs to God. And as soon as we start thinking about, hey, this is about us and what we want to do as a group of individuals, we lose sight of the fact that this isn't about us. It's not about us. So let me offer you kind of a loftier vision of what the church might be, right? Thomas Hobbes, right? You just gather because you all agree, <laughs> and hopefully you'll, you'll agree, and we all know that won't happen, right? Joan of Arc gives us a different version. They asked her uh, before they burned her at the stake, so apparently she gave the wrong answer, well, one of the wrong answers. So they said, what's the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church? And she said, they're the same. Jesus Christ and the church are one. Don't complicate the matter. The church kind of liked that because that kind of elevated them, right? Because, you know, basically the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. The problem with that is that anybody with eyes can see that the church is not the body of Christ. Either I don't want to be a part of the body of Christ because it's a mess or the, the church is a mess. You know, you kind of have to decide. And, and what people do, they do decide that, right? They decide, well, I know the body of Christ is good, and, and so the church must be the wrong part. And so they reject church. Or, or... They decide, well, if that's the way the church believes that they're the body of Christ, and wow, what a mess, I don't want to be a part of the body of Christ. And they leave faith. They not only leave a local body, but they leave faith. Again, the problem, 2,000 years, documented abuse from all stripes and tribes of Christianity, not just any one particular denomination, right? There's a reason that Martin Luther didn't add a sixth sola, sola ecclesia, right? Because the church, what a mess, what a mess. Two main responses, again, we can either trivialize the importance of the church and church membership because it's just a collection of individuals, right? My salvation is not dependent on me being in this building. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Neither is yours. We come into this place in order to become more Christ-like, but it's not dependent. Our salvation is not dependent. We can actually go out in the middle of that street out there and we can find Christ. I, I've heard about that, right? It doesn't have to be in this building. It can, be, it can be anywhere. It can be anywhere. So again, we can trivialize the importance of church membership and church, kind of revert back to the individualism, self-interest of Thomas Hobbes, right? If the church doesn't serve me and my needs, I'm out of here. Church needs to get their act together. But if it's true, then I don't want to be and I don't have to worship with the body of Christ. Again, it's a documented fact. People find Christ outside of church. Yes, it's true. You know what the fastest growing denomination in America is right now? It's called the nuns, right? No, that's for real. When you check a box in your census, what religious affiliation, there's a nun. That group keeps growing. Not the Roman Catholic, not the Mormon, not the Seventh-day Adventist, not the Nazarene. The nuns, that group just keeps growing. Like, I don't want to be a part of y'all. The nuns. So, is the church such an institution like the body of Christ that we have to unquestionably bow down to it and do everything that it says and it, it's like, you know, God? Or is it something that we can maybe do without, especially if it's not personally mattering to me. So my, my, my thought today is, and this isn't my thought, it was taken from a, a professor, a Nazarene professor at Eastern Nazarene uh, College or University, I'm not sure what it is at this point. He also teaches at our Nazarene Theological Seminary. Um, Eric Severson wrote an amazing study on, uh, on this church. And so a lot of these ideas I'm taking are, are from, from this gentleman here, not, not 
mind. So if you hate them, hate him. <laughs> that works really well. Didn't think about that. Um, again, if we, what if we thought of church as not just primarily not a building, like we've talked about that forever and a day, right? The church is not a building. The church is not a building. The church is the people. How many of you, raise your hand. You've heard that, right? Right? I see hundreds of hands going up. Wow, it's just crazy. So primarily, we, we, we've kind of nailed that one down. Primarily, the church is not the building, it's the people. And I want to challenge you, I want to I I push that net out a little bit wider this morning. What if, what if primarily, what if primarily um, church, and again, I'm using the word primarily. What if church primarily wasn't about budgets or Sunday school classes or youth and children's departments or even a carefully organized and orchestrated Sunday morning worship service with an order of service that I follow very carefully in everything? Right? What if, what if church wasn't about that primarily? What if church, we, we begin to think of church as an event? All right? So I'm not, I'm not laying anything new like a doctrine here. It's just, I just want to let your imaginations run with this idea, okay? Church as an event, not so much a set of specific ideas, but is about positioning our lives together in such a way as we might participate in something of God happening, right? A kingdom event, a kingdom event. And with this mindset, these God happenings, they can happen anywhere. They can happen here, right? You all have witnessed God happenings happening in church, right down here at an altar, maybe in a seat. I mean, it happens all the time. We know this. But with church as an event, we, we're not limiting it to us gathering here, whether we're in a building or not. We're, we're going to extend that out just, just a little bit. And a God happening can actually happen <laughs> Um, beyond and in spite of our organized efforts, right? I mean, sometimes we organize things and we get all like, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and, and, and we forget that, that it, it's actually the Holy Spirit doing the work, right? We, we get so caught up in we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this. Um, so God happenings, right? These, these kingdom events can happen anywhere, but they're not dependent on our organizational efforts, right? The Spirit moves where the Spirit moves, right? We know this. We can organize all we want, and the Spirit might not show up. And we can organize a little bit, and the Spirit might show up in just an amazing way. The Spirit does what the Spirit does. We do what we can do. The Spirit does what the Spirit does, right? The church is the body of Christ only when it is the site of, king, uh, of God's kingdom. Listen very carefully. Only when it's the site of God's kingdom overwhelming and disproving the kingdoms of the world. Right? When it's the site, again, of kingdom events. Check this out. Kingdom events. Good Samaritan. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan. Very dangerous, possibly foolish habit of spending your money on total strangers. Right? How many do you hear in the news going, hey, go find a total stranger on the side of the road beaten and pour all of your time and energy into that? Right? That, that's a, most parents will tell you, don't do that. Don't, that's dangerous. Or, or, or how about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Turn the other cheek. If they ask for your shirt, give them your coat. If they ask for your coat, give them your shirt too. Even if they don't ask for it, we, we, we just give. We just give. Or the, the widows might, right? Is that the way you build an organization on, on two cents, right? You give away your last penny and like, ooh, we're building an organization. That's where we're going we're gonna to give away everything. Are these the ways that we build an organization or an institution? I don't think so. But it is the way that the kingdom of God is spreading. Maybe not the church, but it's definitely the way that the kingdom of God is spreading 
around the globe by kingdom events. And we as the church, we should be the site or the promoter, the preparer for, the vigilant, the, the watchers of kingdom events. Just, just kind of, just, let, me, let me play with this idea just a little bit. And again, I'm not saying that we don't need budgets or Sunday school departments or church services, right? Or that we shouldn't, you know, seek advantageous business deals and win prizes, seek alliances, partnerships of a cooperation, all that. that, that that's, all, that's all fantastic stuff. Because so, if you negate all that, then you're nothing but a modern-day Gnostic, right? And the Gnosticism kind of came about 200 years after Christ. And it was this idea that everything about the body, everything that we do physically is evil, and only spiritual stuff is good. So anything that we humans do is a waste of time, right? Just stop doing anything because only spirit is good. And we've got this idea in our world today, churchgoers, that anything that we plan, ooh, that's human, that's, ooh, that's bad. No, that's just Gnosticism, right? We are, we, are, we are created whole. We are not just spirit, but we're mind and body also. What are we to love God with our, our whole heart, mind, soul, and body, not just our spirit? So this idea that budgets and all that is unspiritual, nah, it's not what I'm saying at all. Those, all those things are intensely important, but those are the things that don't grow the kingdom. They'll make a church stable, but they might not, and I'm going to say this very carefully, might not necessarily primarily be the keys that grow the kingdom, budgets, Sunday school. They're, they're important. I, I, again, don't get me wrong on this. But primarily speaking, is it our budgets that are going to grow the kingdom of God? Do you think your pocketbook is going to grow the kingdom of God? I'm, I'm asking you seriously. Do you, do you, get, you got that much? I don't. I don't even think I have, there's enough money in the world. I'm just saying that these are the kind of events that build an institution, and they're incredibly important, but not primarily the events that spread the kingdom. Not only spread the kingdom, but disprove the kingdoms of this world. That's why Jesus, right, he didn't call down angels when he had an opportunity, right? He told Peter to put away the sword, right? He forgave those who killed him. Every one of these acts disarmed and proved that the powers and the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdoms that are going to be standing at the end of the day, at the end of the third day. Disarming, disproving the kingdoms of this world. And just to be clear, just to be clear, the resurrection was not like God swooping in at the last minute and saying, whoa, I'm bigger and badder than the rest of you, and I got bigger weapons, so I win. Right? Y'all, I, I, I tried not to play by the world's game, but I was losing, so I had to swoop in at the last minute. No. Right? The cross is not God playing by the rules of the world. God never played by the rules of the world. He played by his rules of love. And on the cross, it's not... I win, it's I lose for you all. I will lose, I will empty myself because I love you this much. Love, not power. Love. God could have taken on the whole Roman Empire in a split second, but he, another empire would have rose in its place. So he decided to tackle something deeper than the Roman Empire, more dangerous than the Roman Empire, more deadly than the Roman Empire, sin. And you don't beat sin with a sword. You beat sin with love, with sacrificial, self-emptying love. That's what God did on Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. He defeated. So how do we as the church position ourselves to be the site of kingdom events of events that bear the mark of God's kingdom here on earth. 
Well, good news, it's not like a needle in a haystack kind of thing, but neither is it a checklist thing. We can't, you know, check, 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 check. Up, oh, up, oh, we did it, right, good thing. Paul confirms not only everything that we've been talking about, but he kind of gives us a way forward, very, very, a good way forward. Listen, this is 1 Corinthians. This was read earlier. Chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, By the grace God has given me, right, right off the start, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should care, build with care. By the grace God has given me. The number one thing that we need to understand is we don't build the kingdom. God alone builds the kingdom. By the grace of God says that it could not be done without him. No matter how much budget, no matter how many rooms we got, it will not be done without the grace of God. It's not us, it's God's grace. It's God's gift, right? We, the church, are simply the conduit by which and in which the hope and riches and power of his glory get distributed. Implications. This is crucial. We, the church, we can only prepare for and anticipate an event of which we have no control over. We can prepare for it, we can anticipate it, but we can't actually script the Holy Spirit. We try, and, and I think God's all right with that, right? We, we, we work all the other factors that, that are within our power, and then we just, we, we just wait expectantly, and we, we, we hope. We hope that the Spirit shows up, and, and in a kingdom event happens right here in our midst. Continues with the second truth. Verse 11, it says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So not only can we not build the kingdom, it's not our kingdom to build anyway. It's not our mission, it's God's mission. He builds it, which is perfectly reflected and delivered in the person of Jesus Christ. And by extension, it's not our church, it's his church. See, our problem with Nazarenes is we've got a little bit of baggage called believer's church baggage, right? It, it came from a lot of different places, right? This idea that... Um, we're a voluntary association, and, and this is all about just about us and believers, and, and, and we gather together, and it's all about us gathering together. Um, in fact, the early church manuals called us a voluntary association of believers, which, which, I, which the church fathers, I mean, and, and luckily in 1989, they actually came up with a beautiful, changed that idea, right, to, 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 to get rid of that self-interest, individualistic idea of a gathering of believers who just gather together because we, it's helpful for us, right? We're more than that. We're so much more than that. In 1989, the general church felt it was important enough to add a 16th article. Did you know, I did not know this, that we once had only 15 articles, and I'm guessing we had even fewer than those at one point, um, but in 1989, we added a 16th. It actually becomes number 11, which our total number went to 15, 16. But now we have an article of faith. We, we feel it's this important, right? Here's what it says, kind of backing up what I'm talking about here. We believe in the church, the community. Now, you notice that. That's singular. That's singular. We're a community. We're not an associate of believers. We're not a gathering. We're not anything like that. We are a singularity. The community that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, the covenant people of God, again, a, a, a singular way of saying that, not a plural way of saying that, the covenant people of God, all singular, made new in Christ, the body of Christ, called together by the Holy Spirit through his word. Again, no longer an association of individuals. We are a people. We're a people. We're a people of God. And this is important because when we see ourselves as in the community of God, we don't revert to the world's way of taking care of stuff. When we have a problem in the church, more often than not, a bunch of important, voted people get together and they decide, how will we solve this problem? 
And again, every once in a while, somebody really, really, really bright steps up and says, let's pray. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost seriously like, oh, yeah, well, what are we doing? Right? That should have been the first step. The other day, the children's council met, and we were talking about these, these, these uh, Christmas, um, Operation Christmas Child, these shoeboxes that go to needy kids. Um, and we're, we're going through all the plan, all the human plans of it, and, and Melissa Hunterchek goes, um, we should pray for it. Yes, we should, Melissa. Thank you. It's just like really beautiful, though, but she nailed it. Everything we do is for naught unless we have the Holy Spirit showing up and doing something, doing something amazing, right? Um, so it's not our church, not our mission, neither of which do we have the power to build anyway. At the very end of the statement, it says that we're called together by the Holy Spirit through the Word. We are not the church because we voluntarily associate together. We're the church because the Holy Spirit called us together through the Word to demonstrate and authenticate the kingdom of God and to disprove and disarm the kingdoms of this world. And here's the important part. When we orchestrate or play or plan a gathering, active service and so forth, Again, we have the unreasonable hope that the riches and power of his glory, which are not ours to give. I just kind of want to keep hitting on that. It's not ours to give. We are simply the conduit, and our job is to be a clear conduit so the grace of God can be given to the people who need it. So to avoid unexamined blind allegiance to the church and to avoid trivializing the church. There's just a couple things we need to remember kind of in conclusion here. It's not our mission, it's God's. We can't build it. It's a gift of God's. Therefore, it must be built on Jesus Christ, which is the truth that is God. So what is the truth that is God? You might have heard of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian out of Germany. He was very bothered by the fact that the church was really leaning into objective truth. Like when we proclaim the message, right, when we bear witness to the kingdom, well, that's coming up on the next slider, when, when we do the things that God is calling us to do, um, a big part of the church has decided that we're going to tell people facts. And that is a huge part of what we do. We do it in our Sunday school rooms. We do it with our, our curriculums. We... Facts are important. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer said we, we need to pay more, maybe, maybe, maybe more attention to theological facts and truths that aren't necessarily something that you can write down on a piece of paper and, and, and prove. A, a truth like when, I, when you give a, a glass of water to a starving, a thirsty child, that's a, that's a truth. When that happens, that child learned a truth. And it, didn't, it wasn't like A and plus B equals C. It wasn't that kind of truth at all. The truth was that the people of God love me, and therefore God must love me. That's, that's, a, that's a truth. And what are the things that we are doing in the city of Richland, Washington, that is truthful? Are we just proclaiming truth statements, objective truth statements, or are we going out and showing people what love actually is? Third paragraph of our manual statement kind of reiterates, highlights this idea. The church fulfills its mission by making disciples. Remember our, our new mission statement, we make Christ-like disciples in the Tri-Cities. By making disciples through evangelism, education, showing compassion, working for judgment, and bearing witness to the kingdom of God. 
Through these five things, four things culminating in the fifth one, however way you want to read that, we bear witness, we, we, we present truth not so much by what we say, but by what we do, by what we do. What we do is true. The mission of the church in the world, this is from our article of faith, the mission of the church in the world. Now, I want you to notice something. There's no what's called a fatal comma there. It's not the mission of the church and then the mission of the church in the world. It's not like the, we got this mission, the mission of the church, and we also have the mission of the church in the world. There's no comma there. It's one idea. We have a mission in the world. We have a mission in the world. We have a mission in the world. We don't have a mission. We have a mission in the world. Don't ever let those two separate in your mind. We have a mission in the world. Our mission statement can kind of be compared to, I guess, a mission statement of every general in every war, right? Win the war. Every field general got the, the mission from central headquarters, right? Win the war. We've got to win the war. Defeat the enemy. I mean, that's the mission. Defeat the enemy. But here's the fact. Every general, every field general in that war probably received some further instructions that were a little bit different than all the other field generals. There was a whole bunch of different strategies going on in order to fulfill the mission of defeating the enemy. So we as a church, we put together a mission statement. That's kind of what all the churches in the whole globe are supposed to be about, right? Making Christ-like disciples. Well, holiness churches making Christ-like. We all should be making disciples. Um, but but then we're, we're, we're kind of like one of the field generals, right? We kind of got a, a specific set of stars. We're calling that a vision statement. What would it look like for us to be a part of the big mission of God? Us here in Richmond, Washington, not over in California, not anywhere, not, but, 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 but us here. So we developed a, a, a vision statement that incorporates a lot of these ideas that we're talking about. Check this out. Uh, what one do we get? Right there it is. As a family of believers, we are striving to come alongside and support our neighbors through the love of Jesus. All that does is it further focuses us. Yes, we are to make Christ-like disciples, but just here? No, in the world. Here and in the world, together, right? Being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. I love that. Spiritual formation class we all had to take when we became pastors being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. I've got to tell you very, very quick, running out of time here, these shoeboxes for the sake of others. I just thought, you know, let's put these signs out front, and I'm sitting in my office, and I put the sign out there, first sunny day, this was last week, and the three little boys next door, Rylan and Logan and Riker. The oldest one comes, and he... And he He's on his bike and on the sidewalk, and I'm in my office because I'm looking out the window trying not to be creepy. And I'm watching him, and he's taking the box, and he, he, t he grabs three boxes. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And he goes and he has a conversation, I guess, with his mom, and he comes back and he puts all three boxes back in. I'm like, <sighs> so I continue working. Pretty soon it gets dark because it gets so dark crazy earlier up here in Washington. And so I close in the curtain so people don't see me creepy staring at them. And I'm working, and there's a knock on the door. I'm, I think I'm doing a Zoom with the teens. There's a knock on the door. And I'm like, okay, hold on, teen. Goes door. And they're the three boys, right? And they got their three boxes, and they've loaded all three boxes. And, like, they each put a card in, and they got their picture, and all three of them wrote on their little cards, I want to be your friend. <laughs> this is what we're to be about, right? Being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. I want to challenge you. Everything we do in this church, can we do it for the sake of others also? Can, can, we, can we just push the envelope just a little bit and, and be on mission? Everything we do, 
on mission for the sake of others because here's the deal. Watch this. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, 32, and I'm going to finish at verse 33. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? By the way, that's not worrying about not having enough. These are people who are worrying about having the nicest of. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. You know, he knows you need significance, and you, you know, feel comfortable about yourself. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Right? All of your needs will be met, but don't make that the primary purpose that you're coming to this place to worship God. We're here for his purposes. And when we attend to his purposes, this passage tells me that he then attends to my needs and he takes care of them. But I got to put his kingdom first. That's what I challenge you this morning. Put his kingdom first. Put your, make your faith his faith. I guess I'm not sure that's the right way to say it. Bow your heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this church, this, this local body that's desperately trying to be the body of Christ. And Father, you even say that this is a tall task. We're, we're, we're clay vessels holding such a valuable message, but you entrusted it us. Clay vessels, you, you entrusted us with this incredible message. So Father, help us... Uh, to present and proclaim this truth in a way that, that sticks and that changes lives. Father, thank you for everything you do for us, for giving us direction, purpose, and hope in this life and riches and power, the same power that raised your son from the dead. We have that power. Father, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.